Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 303 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Right Now Media and Married People, two brand new partners. And our guest is Rebecca Lyons. I've been excited for this interview for a while. She's somebody that I have followed for a few years now on social. She and her husband, Gabe, are founders of Q Ideas. They have hosted such fascinating conversations with global thought leaders like David Brooks, Malcolm Gladwell, Soldad O'Brien, and Tim Keller. And Rebecca is a national speaker and best-selling author of several books. She has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, The Huffington Post, many other places. And her most recent book, Rhythms of Renewal, is all about anxiety, stress, panic attacks. How do you overcome that? And Chances are, if you are not dealing with that, somebody you care about is. Somebody in your family, uh, maybe it's somebody on your team that you really rely on, and she's got some great, great insights on that. So I'm very excited for this conversation and being able to bring it to you. Also, we've got an Ask Carrie today. Chris wants to know, what are some effective ways to help your team not experience burnout? Really, you know, after Rebecca's interview, I think you're gonna, your, your curiosity is gonna be piqued even more for this. How do you put systems or processes in place that encourage staff to protect their personal time? So I talk about that at the end of this episode, if you listen to the very end. And uh, we got two brand new partners on this episode. So right now, media, you guys are probably always looking for content and you're looking for things that can develop you. What I love about Right Now Media is that they bring you content from leaders. So subscribers get unlimited access to videos from some of our former guests like J.D. Greer, Francis Chan, and Voskamp, Henry Cloud, Patrick Lencioni. And Right Now Media has got a free trial on for you right now. When your organization subscribes to Right Now Media, everyone gets access to these videos for free. And if you're saying, I don't really know, why don't you try their free trial? So you can go to rightnowmedia.org. That's rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And you'll get a free trial only if you go to that link, rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry. You'll find Bible studies, leadership training, personal care resources, more than 20,000 churches, schools, and businesses already subscribe to Right Now Media's streaming platform, I think you're going to love it. You know what one of the greatest needs you probably have facing your church right now is? It's the state of marriages. You poke a little bit underneath the surface and you discover that a lot of people aren't happy. Uh, you know the divorce rate for what it is. And having been married to somebody for 30 years and also somebody who practices law in the area of family law, I can tell you things aren't as great as you might think they are. So what are you doing in terms of marriage ministry at your church? In 2010, there was a study done on marriage ministry. And you know what most people thought about marriage ministry? And this is why most of them fail. It's preachy, boring, outdated, and feminine. So for the last decade, Ted Lowe has been working at marriedpeople.org, creating what has many people are saying 
is one of the best ministry organizations around. I've known Ted for years. I've also known Orange. I've worked with Orange, Reggie Joyner for years. And MarriedPeople.org is actually a marriage division of Orange. And I am so excited about what they've created. They've kind of flipped the old model of marriage ministry upside down. Uh, and they've got a current, relevant, professional, helpful, and often just really, really fun approach to marriage ministry, something people actually want to go to. Even better is the fact that married people has everything you need to start a marriage ministry from scratch or to elevate what you're already doing. And it's a turnkey solution, so you can truly hand it off to a sharp volunteer couple. You don't even need staff for this. As a leader, all you need to do is promote it a little bit. And there are so many ways to do it from the stage, via email, word of mouth, etc. So Ted told me he really wants to pour into you as podcast listeners. So if you go to marriedpeople.org forward slash carry, you'll get 30% off the annual marriage ministry resource bundle. That gives you everything you need for an entire year of marriage ministry. And you're planning for 2020 right now. So check it out. It really is marriage ministry re-engineered for the way things are today. Whether you're passionate about helping marriages or know someone who is, make sure uh, you go to marriedpeople.org forward slash carry. I think you're going to be really, really glad you did. Well, I am so excited to bring you my conversation now with Rebecca Lyons as we talk about panic attacks, stress, anxiety, how we got ourselves into this place, and then some things you can do to get yourself out. And remember to listen for Ask Carrie at the end. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah. Um, so your book, Rhythms of Renewal, which just released an immediate hit, like you, you made it to Fallon from what I saw on YouTube too, right? That was fun. And number two in the world. But we better explain the Fallon reference. That was really well, funny. That was funny. Well, uh, I think I was on the Today Show the day before his book came out. And so it stayed down at like number two to five, six, but his book came out. So he was showing a big poster of his book. And then mine was right next to it. So I was like, oh, I got a little cameo. That's a night show. Hey, I'll tell you, that's be- that's more than most of us will ever get. So that's you got to you gotta Someone enjoy that. Someone sent it to me. They're like, oh, I love that, that re- renewal book made an appearance on Jimmy Fallon. I was like, what are you talking about? So it was just funny. <laughs> that's great. But number two in the world, which is amazing in the Today Show and a lot of other media outlets, Now, you've written before, and one of the questions, we have a lot of aspiring writers and writers who are listening and that, but like, it's always a bit of a mystery as to why a book catches on and then why it doesn't. But this one was an immediate hit. Any thoughts on that or why, other than the grace of God, which is clearly operating? Right. I think the topic is at hand. So part of the research behind the book is that 77% of us right now in society are facing physical symptoms of stress. So that's racing mind, shallow breathing, sleepless nights. And as a result, we are collectively spinning out. And so that's a topic that's a felt need. Four out of five of us basically are feeling this personally. And as a result, we are told often in the church, like, let's just, your faith needs to grow. You need to pray about this. And Jesus is your peace, which I preach you know, to the rooftops, right? Like I believe yeah. that in every every way. I also believe that God created in rhythm and he established boundaries and framework within rhythm. He created our bodies in rhythm, the universe and nature in rhythm. And when we stay within those boundaries, 
we do flourish and we walk in peace and purpose. But when we get outside of those things, because of a digital revolution or um, industrial revolution, and we think we never have to shut down or turn off out of efficiency, then we, our bodies pay the price and our relationships pay the price and our per, our purpose and passions pay the price. And so people are paying the price right now and they know that. And they're trying to figure out what are the steps to get back in rhythm. And so this book is just practical steps, a guidebook. It's almost like a field guide for fear. Like this is what mm. you do. This is what you do when you are overwhelmed and overcome. These are and these are God. This is God's invitation. This isn't Rebecca. This is me just siphoning out what I see, the framework he established for his people to walk in peace. So I'm curious, and we're going to get into the content of the book because I think it is a huge issue for men and women, fear, anxiety, stress, the, the whole deal. But like, did it just come out of the gate strong? Did it like what what happened? Because we all as authors, we watch our books and, you know, you have a launch window. Did you do anything different this time around on your launch? Well, the funny thing is I wrote it in secret, obviously, over the last 15 months. And I had adopted a little girl from China. So I really benched myself professionally. I stopped traveling to speak for nine months and I was home doing edits and I was very intent on this content, having faith and science together. So research mm-hmm. and data is in every chapter. I wanted it to be a smart book. Uh, and um, and so I was almost embarrassed to start talking about it. You know, like you've, you've had it so long. It's like so much a part of what you've lived and done. And these are rhythms I've started to walk out for the last several years. It wasn't until my last book, You Are Free, Paula Ferris mentioned it on the Today Show. Or I'm sorry, on Good Morning America. She gifted it to another anchor on air. I don't know, 18 months ago. It was right before Christmas two years ago. So it, it like exploded. It actually sold more books that day than it did on launch day 10 months prior. And Gabe, my husband was, it was the same day we had said yes to Adopting Joy. It was a long story, but Gabe said, you need to write a third book, like a practical step, like the end of your anxiety trilogy that really gives people handles and action steps on how to walk through sustained emotional, spiritual, relational health. And I was like, no, 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 I want to write, I'm writing a book on home. And he's like, no, but this is a felt need. Like, look at the response to this. And this was, you know, him, my, my husband usually sees things farther than I, farther out than I do. So that's when we just really began um, the idea of writing it because I had been living it, but I didn't think of it as a book. I didn't think I like, this is how I've had to order my life so that I don't keep having panic attacks or anxiety attacks. And, and so this is how I've lived for the last nine years, but I didn't know that it was a book. And so then when I finally mentioned it in May, so that would be, I guess, five months ago, I mentioned one time on Instagram and I did a post and I had a thousand pre-orders from one Instagram post. Wow. And that's where I was like, okay, I guess this is the moment for this conversation. And that's just how it happened. It became a unicorn. Like, yeah, normally I wouldn't share numbers like this, but you know, even just the launch team, they were such a huge part of it. There was over 1,700 on that that just, and they they had to pre-order the book to be a part of it. So I think that like the rules have changed. Um, You know, this is my third time around. Last time I learned a lot about book launching and I I really enjoy uh, the marketing side of it because I've just, I've enjoyed doing free studies and things with people. And so as a result, you have an email list that you can you can talk to about these things and have, um, I don't know, it's just, it felt like we were a team. I had a great team. Zonervan was wonderful, great marketing team. And that all was a part of it. 
a lot of factors come in there. Yeah, yeah. How did the Today Show thing happen? Did they hear about the book? Was it a connection? Was it from before? So my PR, uh, so we hired PR in um, June and Mm -hmm. she pitched it. She pitched it and they were saying no to everything. But again, they wanted to really talk about panic attacks and faith and anxiety. And, and, and so she called me in July. I had not even launched the pre-order page or talked about it beyond that one Instagram post in May. (laughs) I had not even done anything. And she said, so which day on your tour could you be in New York for the Today Show? And I'm checking out bananas at the Kroger (laughs) (laughs) self-checkout. And I was like, wait, what? And she said, yeah, they want to do it. And I just was like, and I think it was again, God's kindness to go, Hey, you're going to work really hard and I'm going to appreciate that. But, but this part's done. You know what I mean? Like I had literally nothing to do with that. I don't know. And I I honestly think I go back to the book now. I do. Thankfully, Shauna Nequist was a good friend of mine when Mm -hmm. my very first book came out and she just said, you can have a splash in the beginning. Like a lot of us, we work really hard to do, but ultimately the credibility of the content itself and how it relates to people is what is going to actually make a book sell like over the life of the book. And I think this is my third one. It wasn't, I didn't get this reaction the first two. I certainly have had, um, the second one did wonderful, but it, you know, I think the second one was really written to the church. It's about the freedom that we already have. Hmm. And this one, I felt a strong conviction, even as I was finishing those final edits, that these are for people. This is for people outside that have curiosity about faith, that maybe haven't invited God into the middle of their pain because of whatever reason they've been wounded by the church or God doesn't really seem relevant to them. This is, to me, a bridge to people to consider um, that God actually has a created order and a plan and a purpose for them and invi- and wants to be invited into that. But because we have free will, we don't have to invite him into it. But if he's not going to force it. But but I think sometimes our pain gets us to the point where we are willing to consider that again. That's interesting, Rebecca, because uh, I, I mean, we're both writers and uh, this is your interview, not mine. But I was on a phone call with uh, my publisher yesterday. So I have a book on stress and overwhelm and burnout that comes out in September of 2020. And I have the same conviction that this is definitely for people inside the church, but I really feel, and, and this, you know, I don't, I'm the last guy to speak for God, because I think that gets way overdone. But I would say I feel a prompting or a leading to like, no, this is for the lawyers you used to work with in Toronto, even more so than my last book. And people who don't have faith, people who maybe meditate or do yoga, but don't understand uh, Christianity. How did you write this book differently with that in mind? Or did you write? Because you do talk about your faith, like you talk about it in there. But what was different when you when you tried to get that voice? Well, I want to always relate to the reader, no matter where they stand in faith. You know, the feelings and the emotions and the response and the doubt and the fear and the questioning. I mean, I'm I'm wrestling with God in the first three pages, like, am I a fraud? You know, I don't think most people outside of the church are used to hearing someone inside the church saying that out loud and, right. and being sincere and honest about that. Because then all of a sudden we become relatable again and approachable because we're not preaching as if we've arrived and as if we do, as if we don't struggle 
and as if we've got this thing figured out. And I think the humility that we can take as people who follow Jesus all of a sudden becomes compelling again to someone outside the church. And the realness, the honest, you don't have to be a great writer, um, a brilliant like wordsmith uh, to write a good book as long as you can connect. If you, you have to be honest though. And the only way you can connect is if you're honest. And I think sometimes we're trying to write these eloquent books, but we're not willing to be honest. And when we begin, begin to get really honest, there's all of a sudden an open an open door, whether I'm teaching from a stage or I'm writing a book, I'm like, no, this is really, this is where it took me. Someone outside of the church is gonna go, wow, I didn't know that people even inside faith were that vulnerable with their relationship with God. That That's where I'm at. And that's if I could invite God into that and he would not reject me and send me away, then then I'm interested in hearing more about him. Hmm. That's interesting. You, I've heard you say in other interviews that you've always been a pretty direct person, almost an oversharer. Am I misquoting you? Uh, to the yeah. point where I heard you say, Gabe, early in your marriage would be like, please don't say this at group or <laughs> you right. know, totally. that kind of thing. Is that like how, where is the line for you between, because this is a pretty honest book. I did read it uh, prepping for this interview. Uh, it's a great book. Where is the line for you between what to share and what not to share? Well, when it's, sto- when it's a story about me and there's redemption, there's a thread of it somewhere. It doesn't mean I have to have arrived or figured it out, but I see God's closeness in it, his nearness, the conviction, the, um, maybe the outcome on some level, the, the other side of depression or the other side of fear. Then I think, yes, this is an inroad to share. I don't share stories that are about other people because it's not, while it very much affected me and I was a, a half of that story, I don't, out of honor, I'm not going to share that because it's, it's going to, it might jeopardize something else with someone else. And I just wouldn't do that. I don't think that's honoring. I think ultimately our role as followers of Christ is walking the way of Jesus who lowered himself to the form of it, you know, like being God lowered himself and walked in humility and took death. And I think sometimes in the church, we want to raise ourselves and get all these accolades mm-hmm. and, and we don't want to take death. And so to me, taking death is like being willing to share something that's vulnerable or intimate, knowing that, yeah, I might not look like I've had it all figured out, but actually that's the place where people find hope. They begin to actually find like, wow, you walked through some hard things and yet your faith is still strong. In fact, in ways it's stronger because you really are resting in the fact that God is at the helm of your life. And as a result, I love engaging. When we moved to New York City nine years ago, Yes, it was the birthplace of panic disorder for the first couple of years. But then walking out of that, I became so vibrant in my faith talking to non-believers because I was like, hey, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with this. You don't have to believe with this. But this is what God has shown me, that there is um, a freedom in being able to lay down our burdens, You know, not feeling like we have to fix and save ourselves in every area of our lives. And for the person who's tired, I don't care where you are in faith, you're like, that sounds interesting. I'm curious. I'd like to hear more because you seem to have some joy that I could borrow from. 
And I think if we don't live as a witness, then it doesn't matter what we say. But if our lives start to reflect transformation and abundance and joy and honesty when we have relapse, that's the point of the book. Mm. I started in vulnerability. Yes, I had relapse. What do I do with relapse? What does anyone do with relapse? Um, And I'm so grateful for that moment because it reminded me that you don't take credit for any of this. And there's an empathy for the person who has a victory season and then a struggle season. And, and And when those trials come, how do we respond? And it gave me a tender heart for people it gave me more dependency on God, which I think is the goal, so that our faith can grow. And it gave me more boldness. It gave mm. me more boldness to go on the Today Show and say our identity is not formed by what our kids see online. It's the only one who can speak into our identity, no matter what label the world has given us, whether it's OCD, ADHD, I don't care. Like the only identity, that's not who we are. That's what's come against us. The only identity that we have is formed by God. I wasn't planning to say that on on public television, but I was so in the end glad I did because I was like, this is actually the truth that I believe and the truth sets you free. And if that's, if that's the case, then people who might be a little like confused by it are at least intrigued. I had a friend in New York because I was in New York when this was happening. And so several of my besties from New York, we all had brunch the next morning. And one of the girls said, hey, we were all watching it at work. And my my agnostic friend and um, my Muslim friend were all like in tears watching. Wow! Because there was something you were saying that was resonating deep, deep down. And I think it's important that as no matter where we are in what denomination, but as people of faith, it's very important that we be like, you know, you think of the prophets in the Old Testament. Mm. I believed and therefore I spoke. And I want to be that on the things that matter, on the things that I feel strongly about. I I choose, as we've discussed, what not to speak about. Hmm. But I think when it comes to proclaiming Christ, um, the freedom and the peace that he is for us and how God invites us into a story of healing, then, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. And I think um, let God just do the work. I don't want to get into gender stereotypes, but a little background for me, uh, about a year ago, I decided, you know, as a male, and we have tens of thousands of content creators here, preachers, writers, bloggers, podcasters, you know, you name it, uh, YouTubers. And as a guy, I'm like, I want to put myself under the leadership of some women writers that I don't know particularly well and I really admire. So I started reading and getting to know, like, you know, um, well, Ann Voskamp, mutual friend, Lisa Turkers, you know, Annie F. Downs. I was on her podcast. She was on mine. And one of the, the first things, I mean, you, you can be 10 minutes into this project and you realize, wow, women seem so much more vulnerable than men do. They just, mm-hmm. they do to me. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like that's something that I've seen and it's, it's a reminder to me and particularly the bigger the platform becomes and we're about to hit 10 million downloads on this podcast moments from now. The more you're tempted not to open up, at least I, I won't speak for you. I am tempted to pretend I have it all together when I don't. And it's an active, way more of an active struggle than when there were a hundred thousand people or, you know, a thousand people or 50 people. Um, Can you speak into that? Because I think that's a unique voice that women, in my opinion, seem to master better than men. 
That's a great distinction. And I wonder how much of that is really just part of our hardwiring or our DNA, because obviously God is very intentional about male and female. And and even just when he knits us in our mother's womb and all the things he puts there, there is a vulnerability that women carry that don't men don't carry. And I think that's partly what why men and women are together. Now, granted, it doesn't mean that men aren't feeling that same vulnerability, but sometimes I know for for Gabe, like his vulnerability would be, I wanna make sure that I provide and protect and and defend my family. So, and so so his vulnerability might be more like, I, I wanna make sure that I can do those things. And sometimes I don't feel equipped to do those things, but that is the responsibility that, and the burden that I carry. I think the female, in our home as a mother of four, uh, my my vulnerability is more to read what's not being said, like read the room, discernment, like see behind the eyes, like dig in to those conversations because there's a heart thing going on. So we've got like the outside thing going on, but then we've got these inside things going on, whether we have three teenagers. And so it's trying to get behind those conversations and say, what are we missing? Are there places that we're running too fast, and and it, I always have to lead with my own vulnerability in that because once we do, and Gabe now is, we joke because we do small group, and when we were first married, I would be, you know, I've always been like you said, the chronic oversharer, and so Gabe would be like, "What stories are we willing to tell?" <laughs> in, on our way to small group, and now we're in a group, and so all the guys were joking, Gabe, like they're like. It's where everyone goes around the room and shares where they're at. And then Gabe goes and everyone's like, can I do mine again? You know, because he, <laughs> he really has um, become so much more vulnerable and honest. And what I find is that when male or female, when we are willing to be honest, it almost everybody is like, exhale. Like, mm. oh, so that's the kind of relationship this is going to be. So I, I, I'm safe to tell you this thing because you just told me this thing. We all really want that connection and intimacy and friendship, but you're not gonna have that with a large group of people. And so I would say for men, um, the more you're vulnerable with a friend or two or three, then the more vulnerable, the more comfortable you're gonna get with doing that in your work or your writing or your teaching because you realize that there's a safety there because to me, part of verbal processing is getting things out that you're struggling with. And then as you get them out, you're like, okay, that's not as big of a thing in my, as I say it, as it was in my head. And I also now realize that I'm not alone in it and that um, I'm drawing strength from you as a result. So thank you for free therapy <laughs> in, in friendship. So part of what vulnerability does is it, it keeps us healthy emotionally. That's really helpful. And you're right, you know, and I have that kind of relationship with a few friends where, you know, there's nothing really off limits. And I think you're right. And I think one of the challenges, this is a frequent theme on this podcast, is for a lot of leaders, and I would suggest particularly male leaders, that friendship quotient is missing. It's just right. not as many as we, as we need to have. Can you take us back to your first experience of anxiety because you describe yourself as a pretty driven person in your 20s and you had it all together and then it kind of came to a crashing halt. Can you can you catch us up on that story? Sure. Well, the first halt was at 26 when my firstborn son was born with Down syndrome and we didn't know until six hours later 
after he was born and it was an emergency C-section failure to, like the doctor said, failure to thrive, you have no fluid. He stopped growing the last trimester. So he was only four and a half pounds full term. And all this was a surprise at 39 weeks. So that whole day was so traumatic in so many ways. It's a longer story in the first book. But um, as a result, I got on my knees before God that next year. And my faith matured more in one year than it had in 20. Mm. And partly because I was so, I was grieved. I was crying out. I was fighting for his life to come home from the um, intensive care. And then once he came home, just trying to navigate my role as mother and like, what is healing and wholeness for him look like? Because it wasn't just Down syndrome. It was just growth and even just the delay that he was up against. And um, I was full-time at a church at the time, North Point, actually, Andy Stanley. Yeah, Yeah, I was like, there was only 30 of us on staff. And um, it was early days. And my role was like director of married adults to get 5,000 adults and 500 small groups. And I had a team, but I realized about a year in that I was, you know, my team knew more what was going on than me. And I just Mm. felt God clearly say, this is a season where you need to come home. Because Cade was up to eight hours of therapy a week. And so my life was just done, like done as I knew it. So that began, there wasn't anxiety there, but there was definitely pain. There was surrender. Um, we have two more kids. We, My husband and I launched a nonprofit we co-founded called Q. And so nine years later, um, because that, that, that organization is all about engaging faith on the front lines of culture, whether arts, media, government, policy, education. We moved to New York City because so many people we were working with were coming through that space. And we were convening these gatherings all around the country. So our second one was at Gotham Hall in New York City. And so um, I think we went with this these dreams and, and ambitions and and my youngest daughter at that point was starting kindergarten. So I had ended that decade you know, of diapers and Cheerios and poop and was trying to rediscover mm-hmm. who was she before this? I, I forget. <laughs> and so in that four months in moment, I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm taking the train down to Parsons School of Design. I'm back you know, in fashion and like design because that was my background. And four months in, I had my first panic attack on a plane. And then that continued for over a year, planes, trains, elevators, subways, crowds. And I got to where it was rooted in claustrophobia. It made no sense to me. It was totally foreign, but the anxiety was so intense physically that I started taking nine flights of stairs or walking an extra mile or just avoiding and declining invitations because I couldn't get a handle on it. And that lasted for over a year. Can you, uh, and I've, I've struggled a little bit with anxiety and certainly I've burned out. I mean, I did a great job on that one, but I don't think I've ever had a panic attack. So for those of us, I know a lot of listeners have, but for the people who haven't had a panic attack, can you describe what that feels like? Sure. So it's not rational. Your body is acting and responding as if you're being held at gunpoint. So the adrenaline of your heart is just beating out of your chest. You're sweating profusely. You can't even find your your words. You're, you're, it's sheer terror. And 
And for me, it was rooted in this idea of feeling trapped in a tight space. So the plane turbulence wasn't what was throwing me. It was that when this plane hits, I'm gonna be stuck here and I'm not gonna be able to get off. And then on an elevator, same thing. Like, what if this door doesn't open? I, I will, if I have to sit in this small space, I will die. And it literally, that's what that's what you're feeling like. Um, and so the, I've learned as I've studied claustrophobia in general, it's um, a metaphor for feeling trapped in a, in a, in a context in, in your past, whether it's a relationship or a circumstance or literal, yeah, <laughs> you might've been yeah. physically trapped. But, um, but the only way to combat that is through exposure and rewiring your brain to go like rationally. And that for me, I had to just very much so, because for me, the, the plane, the airplane was the, the trigger for me initially. But then in New York, it was everything that was small or crowded. <laughs> Which is everything and, in New York, right? Yeah, yeah, everything in New York. And then, but I do remember being um, in a moment where I just was physically, my body was doing the panic attack. And then mentally, I was, um, I was coming back from a funeral of my aunt. And I pictured her like staring into the eyes of Jesus. And I just kept holding onto that vision in my eyes while my body's like acting insane. And I, it subsided, like it did the whole cycle of panic. And yet mentally I had to focus on something, a fixed point that was beyond myself, that was full of peace. And, and it's just hard to explain, but I do think hmm. for a lot of people that have this, it's like your body, there's a book called Your Body Keeps a Score. And it's how you have trapped trauma that your body keeps reliving but your cognitive brain cannot remember it. It doesn't actually have the ability to discern fully why this is happening. And, and so it's, it's a fascinating read. He, he treated trauma patients from war or abused children for over 30 years, and it's very scientific. But it is true that we all store some level of trauma, which is basically trauma just means it's anything beyond the bounds of nurture. So it okay. can be yeah, it doesn't have to be an incident. It could just be the way you received um, or didn't receive like love or rejection, or it could be something that was either too much or not enough. And and every kid growing up takes that in differently. It doesn't mean that your parents were bad or that or that someone abused you. It just means that sometimes for each of us, we we walked a road that fell um, outside of the boundary of na- of nurture where we didn't feel like there was someone we could go to or someone we could talk to or someone who was our safety. And so as a result, we kind of, our kids that grow up that are trying to hustle and strive and read the room and work the room and, and find those that acceptance by whatever means necessary. So what, what was your journey with panic attacks like? Because you mentioned you opened the book with relapse, right? So you got it under control to some extent. How did that happen and then, uh, yeah, just catch us up to, to where that is today. Sure. So after that year, I do remember no longer confined to small spaces. I would wake out of dreams or in my bed and I would wake in that same panic attack mode. And so September 20th of 2011, I wrote the date down because it changed everything. I woke in the middle of the night full of terror, can't find my voice. My husband wakes up, begins to pray like he knows the drill. And he begins to pray. And then all of a sudden I found my voice and I just held up my hand and I said, rescue me, deliver me. I cannot do this without you. And in that particular moment, I don't know why the spirit of God prompted me to cry out in that way. But in that particular moment, I was flooded with peace. Like for the first time, just 
everything stopped immediately. And I just collapsed on the bed and lay there in the dark and nothing could move but my eyeballs. And and I just remember thinking like, I don't even know what this is. You know, I'm, there might be a name for this in Pentecostal circles, but this Baptist girl has no idea what is happening. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I was just like, I don't, I wouldn't have called it healing at the time. I, I just, I don't know. I just walked out the next day and I started to see the city in living color. And I started to realize that when you're sick, you only look inward. But when healing begins, you look up and you look out and you see everyone else. And I started to see people just like me, you know, walking the streets of the city, um, gripped in fear. And I started to study faces on the subway and, you know, try to figure out their stories and smile at them and, you know, strike up conversations, just be kind of different. Cause when you're so afraid, you're not, you're not trying to be someone for someone else at all. And yet I started meeting with different women for coffee and hearing their stories and realized, wow, so many of us are walking through hard things. And I started to write. That's when I started writing. I wrote a, mm. a article for Q called Why Are Women Fading? And it was this idea that we march off to college ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And then two decades later, we've lost a sense of who we are. And so in that lostness or that purposelessness that somehow got buried between the weight of roles and responsibility, we start to spiral and... um that really just struck a chord and got me writing. And so I didn't actually have another panic attack for seven years. Uh, I definitely had triggers of anxiety. I mean, certainly I would like, but I better knew I started to create these, again, rhythms for health. And part of it was just, uh, if I had to get on a plane, that's the great irony of God. I now Mm. had to start getting on a plane every Friday to talk about the rescue of God, the same place I got panic attacks. And so what I would do is I would just put worship in my ears and I would literally read the word and journal like the whole time because it was the only time the way I could just stay in that framework. I wouldn't even quite prepare for that night. It was more like, you're just going to need to direct deposit what you want me to share tonight because I'm just going to need to kind of feast on you being my peace. You are my peace. So I submit to that and I come under your covering of peace. I don't need you to like give me enough peace to get through this flight. I'm just going to submit that you are my peace. And so taking that role of submission under that, I felt covered. I felt protected. And um, I just kind of had several go-to passages or scriptures I would read. And it, it did. I just, I was flooded with peace. I, um, and that's why when Jesus says, the peace I give, the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. I think it's so true. Mm. We, don't, we don't always experience it. So we're, we, are, we, we doubt that that's true. But when we get to a point where we've tried all the things and they're not working, then we consider this again and go, okay, are you really the Prince of Peace? And can we submit and come under that? And can you be that for us? Um, And that came through just a lot of time of just focusing in that way, a lot of prayer, and then just walking in a new way, you know? Just deciding, like, if this is already done, I'm going to receive it. And then my life verse that kind of came to my head after all this season of coming out of that was like, Rebecca, I don't give you a spirit of fear. I give you power, love, and a sound mind. And if that is true in Second Timothy, then um, if that is true, then there's got to be a framework with which that God ordered for us to walk this out. If we are to be people of power, love, and a sound mind, then certainly he's going to give us a, a rule book or a, a playlist, something that's going to actually help equip us 
to do that. I think we've all been in a place where we think we've conquered something and then all of a sudden it's back. So that would be 2018. You had a relapse. What happened? Yeah. So I'm stuck in this tiny little bathroom stall. It was like back. It was like back. I mean, I start the book with a story, but it really was that um, that we were in this hundred-year-old home made out of concrete, basically on the cliffs of Carmel, and uh, everyone had left to go into Carmel by the sea for a couple hours. We were hosting a, a retreat, Gabe and I, and everyone was taking a break. And my again, I must have this thing with devices that power off too soon because my <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> My iPhone died at like 40% because I did not want to pay an upgrade to a new phone. And so I had just texted him like, don't worry, I'll I'll just take the car and I'll come meet you guys because no one was going to come back for a couple hours. And then right as I'm doing that, my phone dies. The bathroom stall will not open. The door is like a hundred year old wooden heavy door with these antique locks and that would not open. And it was literally two by four. I mean, just enough for the toilet cement walls and no one's going to come back for hours and no one would hear me and I couldn't contact anyone and something rose. It was as if the worst version of a panic attack I had ever had because I was alone and I was trapped in the tightest space I'd been in in a long time and had nowhere to turn. So as a result, my body freaked out so bad, like as if the muscle memory was yesterday from eight years ago or seven years ago. And when that happened, I was like, I literally am thinking, you're not going to make it. You're not wow. going to be able to, you're not going to actually be able to handle this. Like I was so afraid of me and spinning out because here's what I know about a panic attack. When it begins, you have about a 15 second window to combat that immediately before it consumes you. And once it consumes you, you you feel so powerless to it. Every single part of your body is jello, just trembling, shaking. And, and then you're mentally going, how do I even rein this thing back in? Like it's, it's one of the most paralyzing feelings because you just, you don't, because with fight or flight, the only thing you can do is run and escape. But if you can't, that's why solitary confinement is so condemning, right? You know, because it really, what it does is it robs the human of their dignity of you are so stripped of um, help. So you never have been more helpless in those than you are in those moments. That you are powerless, you are helpless, you are defensive. You can't, there's nothing you can do. And I think that's why it's so terrifying for people because you can't take any agency over anything. Everything's wow. been robbed from you. So you obviously got out of that. <laughs> bathroom in that castle, <laughs> right? To tell the story. Yeah, I looked up and there's this tiny, tiny little window, Palladian, tiny antique decorative window above the toilet, way high. It was a high ceiling. And I thought, can I get up there? I mean, the fact that I saw the window, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then I thought, can I hoist myself to the back of this toilet? And will these hips lie? Can they get through this window? <laughs> and um, I scratched my legs out pretty bad getting out, but I got out and it opened. And then I like just sat there on the cliffs overlooking the sea. And I was just like, God, what was this? What was this? And that's where I just thought, am I a fraud? And, and then kind of the promise God gave me in that moment was I don't, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us because we can get pretty bold and bravado in our faith, but yet 
we're not the ones doing yeah. the rescue. And he just said, um, I sensed in my spirit later that night, I don't promise that fear won't come knocking, but I always promise a way of escape. That And the passage of scripture that's from is that you will be able to bear it. So it's this idea that like, I'm going to be your ever present help in any moment of trouble, no matter what, it, no matter what your fear thing is. I am readily available at right here, ready to be your source of strength and your aid. And I think what happens in church or outside the church, sometimes we get so self-reliant on putting all the systems around us. Mm -hmm. And yet we need the reminder that like, no, there are moments where that desperation where we have nowhere else to turn is when God is ready to move because we, there is no other way. <laughs> and I, I'm so thankful for that reminder because I want to stay in tune with my frailty and with his sovereignty and how um, how the, the power of walking in faith really is from him. And, and it gives me the joy of him gives me strength, you know, like that's, that's a good thing to be reminded of. It keeps us humble. You do have rhythms that I want to get to in this conversation that have been really helpful. And I wouldn't say that I have that system, but I can resonate with a lot of what you're saying. And there are, I mean, you know, for the leaders listening, I think everybody has got stress. Everyone's got some level of anxiety. Um, people have been through depression. People have been through burnout. A uh, number of leaders have panic attacks. And there's sort of the immediate delivery out of the moment, right? Like, okay, how did I get through this one? But you're saying there should be um, not a system, but there should be a rhythm to your life. There should be some things you can do that help prevent those conditions from arising. Is that is that accurate? Yes, because when this relapse happened, I was not rested. I was not restored. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't really connected in friendships because I was traveling so much. There was a lot of out... There was a lot of output happening. There was not a lot of input. And so these rhythms are, again, a reminder that there's four rhythms and the first two are input. And it's funny, I have an online quiz, like what's your healthiest rhythm? And I've had thousands go through it. And of course, the lowest one for everybody is rest. Which is number <laughs> one, right? Right, yeah. right. I'm like, that's why we're going back to the drawing board. This is the foundation. It's the baseline for health is rest is a superpower. If if you have, if you've forgotten to rest, or you don't have permission to rest, or you don't think that you um, can afford the time to rest, here's the thing: it's going to get you. Like, yeah. <laughs> rest is not optional to God, and um, because He rested, and we must rest. I think part of it's just going back to the reason we're so stressed out and burned out is because we have forgotten how to rest. Our bodies are being pushed beyond the circadian rhythm that was established in in creation. To you know, to be like machines that never turn off out of efficiency. So we have a phone telling us to never turn off, and meanwhile, there you know, you've got a sunrise with the blue light that tells you to wake up that emits blue light, and a sunset that emits red light, which is natural melatonin for your body. So God's like, I've actually created a system that your bodies function and thrive within, but a machine, on the other hand, is going to tell you to do something different. And we're buying pills and devices off of Amazon that generate these things when it's right out there to begin with, out your front right. door. Yeah, exactly. Can you walk us through what rest looks like for you and kind of break that down? Because I'm glad you started there in the book. I mean, it was a lack of rest and about a thousand other things that led to my burnout. And that is one thing that I take so seriously and I don't always do well anymore. 
But it's more than just sleep. I mean, sleep is part of it, but what does rest mean? Right. Sleep, uh, there's seven chapters I start with. So rest and restore are your input rhythms and connect and create are your output rhythms. So we'll get to those in a minute, but rest and restore. So rest for me is the inner life, the health of the inner life. Like, am I okay? Is is God and are God and I okay? Yeah. <laughs> I've had a real conversation in the last few days. Uh, and so uh, the first chapter is all about taking inventory of your life because I think sometimes because we're so busy reacting and going, we don't pause long enough to go, is the life I lead the, lo- the life that longs to live in me? Am I actually doing the work that I am so passionate about? Or am I just reacting to everything? And and so part of this is take a tech detox. I walked through having to do that for three months and how that created in my heart a, a desire to to sleep again, dream again, learn again. I you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, I have original thoughts again. You know, this yeah. isn't me trying to look at what somebody else did on Instagram and go, how do I recreate that? What did your tech detox look like? Because that's, you know, I've read uh, Digital Minimalism by Cal uh, Newport. And uh, I, it's, it's really interesting. What did yours look like and what did it do? For me, I looked at where I spent most of my time and it was Instagram. And it had been seven years almost to the day that I began Instagram. I was an early adopter. We just moved to New York. It was an online, you know, photo gallery for my yeah. friends back home. So I take dumb pictures of a hot dog cart or like tulips in Central Park and, you know, my kids like sitting on, you know, a statue or whatever. But then I realized as my platform grew with writing and teaching, I stopped making it about what I felt compelled to share, but more about what I thought people wanted to hear. And and so I lost my voice in some way. I didn't lose it when I was writing or teaching because when you're in the room, you can you still are who you are. I mean, yeah. I found it so much easier with no filters to just be real. But somehow online in that medium, it felt a little more like it had to be editable, whether the photo was editable or the copy was editable. There was still like a degree of separation that that was hard to overcome. And then you're always looking at what everybody else is doing. So finally, my dad died last... When my dad died, it was a long, painful journey. He had died in um, April... And I felt prompted to get off social media for, for Lent. And I was like, God, it's not that big of a deal. And so I ignored it. And then I found that after my dad died, I was really facing depression. And I was very familiar with that because I had depression in New York. And I called a friend and I said, I don't want to hemorrhage publicly. And so I'm just going to get offline for the whole summer. So I took three months off. And it was great. I didn't even have my phone. Like I got to where I didn't even know where it was because apparently I just was really just unplugging, trying to heal, trying to grieve. And I learned even in that chapter on tech detox that I finally like am going around the bend and I see the sunset that's so glorious in Franklin. There's a lot of pretty sunsets in Franklin. And normally I would feel the compulsion to take a photo and share it. Hmm. And so I reach for my phone and realize I don't even have it with me. I have no idea where it is because I haven't looked at it for a week. And because um, it's summer and my kids are home, we're all just it, as family being together. And And God says, you're worthy to receive something beautiful and you don't have to share it. And it made me like ask the deeper question, like, why do I always have to share publicly these gifts you give me that are really meant for us and and meant in communion and meant for intimacy? Yes, we could certainly share things that you've done and that we're learning. And I'm not against that because I think we're called to that. But how do you you differentiate when you're just 
just receiving from God and that this doesn't have to become a Bible study, right? Or this doesn't have to become an Instagram post. This is just receiving. So that was a fundamental lesson on worth for me. And honestly, when I re-entered in the fall, it was awkward. I was like, you know, it's like going back to middle school and like, what's everybody wearing? You know, <laughs> what's everybody doing online? I didn't even know you could do this certain swipe up feature, whatever, you know? So it took me a while and it still felt a little like clunky. And even now I just have reordered how I see it. Um, I think it's a megaphone for the work that you're already doing outside of that space. And that's a wonderful thing. But when it starts to become the work itself, like to manage that, then then to me, for my work, it's getting unhealthy. How much of your anxiety do you think was tied to technology? Well, because it's like a popularity contest that won't quit. It's like you're in mm. seventh grade and you can never leave. You know, like everyone's just trying to be part of the cool guys. Uh, because it's a public display of people sharing how much they like your content and how much they're commenting on your content. It's just literally created to be a place of comparison. It's mm. set up that way. Mm. I mean, I know several um, countries were considering Instagram where they took down the visibility of likes and the visibility. Yeah, we did that in Canada. Okay. I don't mind it now. I, I, well, that's why I love stories so much because... Nobody actually has to see me engage off like in a direct message with someone. Mm. And I and I find that that's really freeing for me. I can minister. If someone has a question, I'm like, sure, da, 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 and it's quick, but it doesn't have to all be public. And I think um I think that anxiety is like, am I enough? Am I keeping up? And I think the reason why they're trying to they consider taking that not public is because so many kids, so many kids and teenagers their whole worth, their worthiness, their literal question of worthiness was contingent on a number. And then then if that's the case, then we're no longer human. We're just functioning as robots and say, my worth is dependent on my output and my production cycle and my number. That is so far from where God sees humanity and his belovedness for us. I think, man, it's no wonder so many of us are spinning out. Because we really do see our worth based on our latest accomplishment. Was it just social on your phone or were you like just off the internet period? Yeah, I was off. I, yeah, I was off. I did listen to podcasts because I was like, mm. I'd go for long walks in nature. And I, I have several people who um, like either whether it's sermons or just like practical content. I love learning. And to me, that was a great way to get outside. I got yeah. outside a ton. I think that's really important. There's a morning routine in there. I think it's very important for rest. There's a chapter on routines for deep sleep. So hopefully you got a good night's sleep. But then in the next morning, there's a chapter on morning routine. And because that first hour sets the framework for your day, what do you want that to look like? And so I I talk people through about, you know, making sure that I got outside and then making sure that I got low before the Lord. Like why a posture of kneeling for me is so centering is because that when you kneel, it automatically slows your breathing, which quiets your central nervous system. And it also, uh, when you extend your palms, it's this, you put yourself before God in a posture of surrender and release. And then the the heart and the readiness to receive. Because I do think prayer isn't about so much us just like giving God our laundry list of the things we want him to do. It's about communion with him and just almost praying in a way that just says, what do you have? Like, 
show me, show me who you'd have me talk to today or encourage, prompt me with like someone I can speak life to and, and then convict me, convict me of the things that I'm blind to, you know, that to me is what prayer is about. And then just show me where to go, what to do, what to say. Do you have any Sabbath rhythms? I mean, I've talked to John Tyson about Sabbath and some other people about Sabbath is, do you take it? Is it, what does it look like for you? Yes, that's the last chapter in it, Stop the Work. And I do, we do do Sabbath. Um, It's a little bit harder in the fall, especially our kids are in school and they have so many things on a Saturday with school stuff, like fun things, because they're now in high school and they're finding this freedom with driving and friends and places to go. So then that falls to Sunday, which we try very hard, but still going to church. And then, you know, Mm. it it does still sometimes feel like work. So, um, So what we're trying to do is just making sure that on Sundays, though, outside of church, like no phones, um, we're just spending time together. We get outside, we go for walks, we play games, you know, we just have long conversations. We'll play guitar. My kids play guitar and um, ukulele and love music and just really try to make that rhythm of that Sunday be different than than the rest of the weekend. And sometimes I will go online like Sunday night at later than eight to just say hello if I do it. But I don't, I'm getting to where I'm not doing that actually much. You just eventually lose interest, don't you? You do. It almost feels like I don't want to really start my work week yet. I'm just going to wait till tomorrow. So that's uh, anything else on rest? Because I think I'm glad you started the book there. We have so many driven people listening to this podcast and most of us stink at rest. We just do. We're just robots. We just go, 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 go. Anything else before we move on to restore? Sure. Like the get quiet one is good because I realized like we don't know what we need to confess until we have room to listen Mm. and to get quiet. So sometimes we think like, we're good, we're good. But the practice of getting quiet and and in solitude, it's not loneliness. It's like, it's you and God. You're not alone. Uh, There's a difference. Uh, but in those moments, so I try to carve out in my work week, not even on the weekend because we're all here, but even in a work week, I'll try to carve out an hour or two somewhere in a morning before I go into the office where I'm like, I need just some, some extended time of quiet, just no noise, no music, no nothing. And I'll read, I'll journal. A journaling is a huge piece for me because I'm, again, I, I process verbally. So that means I used to even process as I write to get to the bottom of some things that I'm confused about. Um, Because I think we are invited by God to take inventory of our days and to just answer those questions I talk about in the first chapter, what's right, what's wrong, what's confused, and what's missing. And we're not going to get to the bottom of those answers if we don't create space to get quiet. Yeah, I'm finding solitude is such a gift these days. And I never used to love it. But do you have to have a certain level of peace with yourself? To sit quietly. There's that Blaise Pascal quote that I love, one of my favorites. Man's chief problem is, a, is his inability to sit alone quietly in his room. Yes. I, I, yes. I, I, I find it such a comfort now, but um, as a kid, I would have never done that. You know what no. I mean? Now it's like, oh, finally. Like I, I joke with my mom friends, like, you know, when all the kids get out of the car and they go in the house and you just linger in the car in the garage and they're like are you coming you're like no i'm okay for a moment because it's quiet (laughs) 
all of a sudden you really relish the quiet. I feel like I'm becoming my parents because sometimes they'll play music so loud, even if it's worship or whatever. And I'm like, can we just turn it way down? (laughs) I know, I know. I'm getting that way too. It's great. Okay, so restore. What does, how is restore different from rest? Because I would think they're, they're almost the same, but they're not. Yeah. They are, they're very, they're both input, but the way I separate them out is rest is more for our spiritual health, Mm. where our, where restore is for our physical health. So once you've kind of got this baseline with God and you're, you're, you're getting the, the, the rest you need and you're getting that input and that examining, examining the heart and those mornings are strong. Then you're starting to have, um, let's work on the energy level because you now have a plan of attack. And so for me, restore is all about uh, what are we putting in our bodies? How are we stewarding the, the life we've been given, the bodies and, and the breath that we've been given? So it's all about <clears throat> diet exercise, using the workout pants, not just wearing them for errands. And, <laughs> and then what, the, what that does for our mental health, right? So we know that a brisk walk outside or a brisk, anything that raises your heart rate produces serotonin in your body, which is what everyone's taking medication for. These SSRIs is to give you this happy hormone. And yet when you actually work out, you are getting a happy hormone. It, it, you you feel more confident. You feel more joyful. You feel more like, hey, life is not as overwhelming today. And my daughter, every time she doesn't like to walk, she does other things that she loves to work out. But sometimes I'll be like, just go for a walk with me in in, in the woods or whatever. We have a, like a hiking trail. And in the end, she's like, oh yes, mom, I'm in a better mood. But please don't remind me of that next time when I don't want to walk. Like it's like we know <laughs> that it does. There, we like we take the dogs and it's fun. And but there's just something about um, getting outside. And then also, we I took our family through Whole Thirty a couple of years ago because I felt an energy drain always having to be on planes. You do on, on, on. Oh yeah. You're, traveling and then you're speaking and then you're traveling. And then, so basically you have a 30, 36 hour window of just nonstop with a little bit of sleep thrown in somewhere, a few hours for one night. But then you're coming home to a family that's looking at you like you're ready to go. And you're just like, I got nothing. You want to lie on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm looking at this laundry pile and I'm just staring at it like with like crazy eyes. I don't even know what to do. And so I would find the kids would go to school, come home at three and I would be like, I know I haven't seen you all day, but I, I need to take a nap. And I thought, no, this isn't who I want to be as a mother. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling this adrenaline on the road, but that the reason I'm able to do that is because of adrenaline. But then I get home and that crashes and I really... You know, this is the, the the quote behind me. If you want to bring happiness to the whole world, go home and love your family. And I'm like, I, yeah. it's hard to love them if you're sleeping the whole time. So mm-hmm. part of it was I've got to change my diet so that it doesn't like spike with caffeine and sugar. And then by by three in the afternoon, I'm crashing. So diet and exercise are a big part of this section of restore, as well as play. Play is a big part. Taking us back to childlike like fun. I want to go back to diet for a moment and not leave it because, you know, again, busy lifestyle. I did the whole 35 years ago. I lost like 20 pounds, which uh, I miss losing those pounds now. And <laughs> I was on it for about 45 days. I could not believe the difference in energy. It was it was night and day because I was getting into double napping. I've always been a nap fan, a sleep guy. But like, and then I'm like, I'm just not tired. I had way more energy. What did you discover on the whole 30, which basically eliminates dairy 
and caffeine Wait. and gluten and carbs, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny. They call it tiger blood. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> I, I forgot. Like, no. Yeah. It's like day 16. They're like, now it's tiger blood. Like you're like you're invincible. Right. You you never knew that you were potentially, you could have the potential for this much energy. Um, but it's true. I think it's an anti-inflammatory diet ultimately. And we yeah. what we don't realize, it doesn't mean that you have to be on that for life. It's it's really to kind of reset your gut because your gut health is is very much connected to your emotional health. And, and so as a result, if things are sluggish in your body or you're eating book, um, foods that inflame and they can't actually stay on the move, then you get sluggish and you have brain fog and you and you always feel overwhelmed and mm-hmm. and so part of it is then you you kind of double the caffeine and then you 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 have a glass of wine to help you go to sleep or whatever that choice is and so you're always trying to do something that gets you up and then slows you down versus a natural diet i found that as i reordered my day with fitness and and diet and had a more productive day my sleep followed my nights were more productive. I, I wasn't waking up intermittently as much because I was kind of doing the, our bodies do, they will respond if we treat them well. It yes. takes some time, uh, but it made a huge difference for me for energy level. It wasn't about weight for me. It was about energy because yeah. I think for you, for you, for me, for so many of us, like we want to be able to run this race with perseverance for as long as we're given. And I would hate to just shortcut it just because I don't have the internal discipline to go like, I should probably not eat three donuts right now. You know, right. I don't, I don't want to thwart that out of just that. So sure, there can be other vices, but like, let's just like try to eliminate the things that seem basic. And for me now, I, you know, there's so many options, even at Costco, we have six, you know, in our family. So I have to go buy lots of food. And even Costco has a million organic, healthy snacks now that are natural. Um, there's a car, a bar right now called That's It. And I gave one to my daughter today for lunch. And it's like, what's in the bar? It says a mango and an apple. <laughs> and it basically wow. is a fruit bar. There's nothing added. So it's, there are ways to do it. You just got to find so those it's more things. whole foods. Are you still on, like, how long did you do whole 34? I stuck with it, like, as a lifestyle and never added cream or sugar back to my coffee. And now I don't do much gluten or dairy ever unless it's a special occasion. So I've yeah. pretty much stuck with it. But um, I'll do, like, Ezekiel bread as a as a gluten because it's those early grains. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have any intolerance to that. But other than that, I'm not, I'm just not doing what right. I used to do with baked goods and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I changed my diet, but it, 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 it flipped back too far. So I'm in the process of redoing it now and just cutting some things out. But it's funny, the food chain's broken, that's for sure. And it is a direct cause and effect. Uh, okay, let's talk about the last two rhythms. Man, this has been a great, <laughs> helpful conversation. So do you want to talk? Because we do have mostly creators listening and we're not going to fail on these, but you've probably got a variation uh, so sure. rest and restore, pay attention to your body, exercise, sleep. And I think most people are you, what, uh, before we leave restore, what's your target sleep? Because you're, you know, you're a mom right in the middle of it, right? You've got, you've got four kids raging in age from. Yeah. So I have 18, 16 and 14. And then we just adopted a little girl from China. So we, she's in kindergarten. So we have oh. a six year old. <laughs> you got it all going on. Yeah, we've got. <laughs> prom going on and then we've got still pull-ups at night because she was she was literally at an orphanage till nine months ago and um 
she's just she's doing amazing. But yeah, it's taken us back to those toddler days a little bit. It's been yeah. it's been really fun. So uh, I, I shoot for seven, seven and a half. Um, you can I can do eight. Like last night I went to bed. I, I'm usually pretty tapped out and tired by by nine thirty, and then I'll probably fall asleep by ten. And I'm up. We get up early, five five thirty, something like that. Um, we Gabe and I try to go for a walk. Now that it's staying dark a little later, once the time changes, we'll be okay. But we usually walk at six fifteen for about an hour because we've mm. put in. We've already put one kid on the bus. The other two are getting themselves ready. And then as soon as we get back, I get Joy ready. So we have to have, again, a morning routine is so essential, I think. Uh, those first hours of the day really do establish the framework for the next 15 hours of the day. And that's a good segue because you make the argument, and I think that's true. I've got some research in my own book about the connection between walking and thinking. So if you're going to create do you want to talk about that? There is an actual correlation between physical movement and your ability to create great ideas. I got a treadmill desk. Oh, you did. This. And Voskamp has one too. That's funny. We joke yeah. about it. Um, but I have a chapter in Restore called Take a Walk. I did put it in that one instead of Create. But the point of it was that I walking, walking actually, it stops writer's block. So when I am creating, you know, I, I just had a podcast. We have a podcast rhythms for life. And I interviewed a friend, Ryan O'Neill was sleeping at last. And I Mm. said, what's, how do you temper a creative block? Cause he challenged himself to write like 36 songs in one year, score them, produce them, put them out. And he said, well, it would always be like, I would just take a nap and then I would take an, uh, like a walk, like a 30 minute walk or a 20 minute nap to just stop. Because what happens is our subconscious needs to speak into that creativity, but we're always in the, that, 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 the brain that's trying to produce. And so when you get away from it, all of a sudden the subconscious takes over again and starts to connect the dots that you weren't able to do when you were trying so hard. And you're like, oh, aha, that was the moment. And there's a mm. book on rest I read a year ago and it just, it, it's not a faith book, it's a science book, but it just studied artists and scientists and past presidents for centuries that had to work within rhythm. And they would always do their most creative moments first thing in the morning. And then they would have lunch, then they would go for a walk, then they would take a nap. So I was like, they got a lot done. And they would do like, you know, 70 volumes of work or paintings, just all these writers, prolific just brilliant people. And rest was such a centering thing for them with walking and napping. Isn't that interesting? You know, that, that there is, you can debate this all day long and the night owls will email me, but I'm a morning person, very similar. I fade after nine o'clock at night. I'm up usually pretty early, usually by five, 5.15 at the latest. And I will follow that rhythm. I will do all my creative output in the morning, uh, kind of have lunch, go for a bike ride in my case if it's a nice day. And then I'm tired and I want to have a nap. And then if I'm lucky to squeeze two more hours out of the afternoon, that's a good day. So you're saying right. that's not an atypical rhythm. No. In fact, in this book, they would say that back in the day, you know, centuries yeah. ago, they would do correspondence in the afternoon correspondence. You know, from, from three to five, which I'm sure was hand letter writing, but for us is email. So yeah. but the yeah. point is, is like sometimes, yeah, there has to be maintenance to our work, but maintenance work is probably not the best first thing in the morning. To me, that's more when you're, you know, later in the day, the creative part of our work to me is is earlier in the morning. That's what I've found in all my studies. And that's what usually works for me. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the last two rhythms, because I think that's so important, connect and create. 
The reason why I start with connect is because you can't, most people create in collaboration. So I want, the whole point of these rhythms is that they're building blocks. You're rested, you're strong, you have community. And then with that community, you create amazing things. Mm. Collaborative work is very important. Uh, they th- people think writing is a solitary sport. I have to say, I worked with 20 people to get this book out into the world. It's not a solitary sport. How, how so? Like 20 people? Like what? I mean, you're talking beyond editors, right? Like No, I'm talking, well, first my editorial team was uh, there's, well, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, including me. So five people actually, then, then you've got someone else actually doing the copy editing. And then you've got someone who's helping with marketing and then PR and agents. And then, so in the end, it's 20 people that I'm exchanging uh, meetings and it's just so fun because everyone's really great in their lane and they're all coming, collaborating on this, this, this book baby. And so I think that's the point of community is that you find the people you love to do the work you love together. And there's so much joy there. So, so jumping into connect real quick, I write about friendship and about how to be the friend you wish to have, because there's a loneliness epidemic right now in society. 46% say they experience high feelings of loneliness and 27% believe they don't have a real friend, like one real deep friend. This is up to ages of 38 and millennials. So that's a problem because we're online talking to everyone, but connecting with no one because connection really can't happen outside of embrace, eye contact, nonverbal communication. And so this is taking you back to what does friendship look like? What does proximity and permanence and presence look like in your home, in your city, in your neighborhood and community? And so I talk about friendship, leading with vulnerability, um, open porch policy we do at our home where, mm. you know, potluck over perfect. So I'll always host like a holiday and we'll provide like the entree, like the meat or something. But I have friends that are way better cooks than me and everyone loves to pitch in. And so I think hospitality is how the church began, breaking bread in homes, opening your homes. It does not have to be perfect. People just want to feel invited. And so I think um, part of this idea around connect is to make sure we're carving space for that. Our marriage, make sure that we're carving space. Gabe and I will be 22 years this December and being real. And we're leaving in two days to help like lead a marriage retreat for, for 80 people. And I think, because of how much we value, no, it's we're dependent on a healthy marriage to do the work that we've called called to do. So we don't want to take that lightly. Um, and then I think the other thing that I find people have that people struggle with in the connect rhythm in relational health. Again, rest is spiritual health, restore is physical health, connect is relational health. That a lot of people hold grudges, and so we go to bed angry, and we have. Uh, unforgiveness in our hearts, which then grows into bitterness, which then grows to contempt. And um, I remember a year ago waking out of a, again, another dream. And I just heard God say like, again, not audibly, but just, you don't have a right to withhold forgiveness from this person. It was this idea that this is now becoming a weight and it's almost, it's affecting you physically in a way it's going to inhibit or prohibit even some assignments I've given you. And, and so I 
felt the weight of my sin right in that moment. I had to just confess, you know, three pages in my journal in the middle of the night. And then I was like, well, crap, now I have to call this person. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm fine confessing to God, but now I actually have to talk to the person because James 5 says, confess your sin to one another, God and one another, so that you can be healed. And I think there is there's something to that. You know, sometimes we withhold forgiveness or we hold on to something for a long period of time. And we're so afraid to just go to that person, but be like, I'm sorry for the way my pain spilled onto you and, Mm. and how I took it on, on you. And I needed someone to blame, but I do believe that when we can start to forgive one another, to just choose to trust, to not condemn one another. And this goes, this goes for being online doing that as well. Um, You know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. To me, that's a real big, that's a strong one for me. It's like, I want to be relationally strong and I can't control what somebody else is doing, but I can certainly control and and ask for forgiveness for the places in my heart I have withheld forgiveness or I've built a root of bitterness and allowed it to grow because I don't want that to slow me down. I don't want that to be the reason just like eating three donuts and in, in the restore right. rhythm. Yeah. I don't want my grudge holding to, to keep me from um, walking in the fullness of what God's invited me into. So that's connect. Wow. Okay. For all the creatives, all the outputters yes. and you guys, you have to get the book, but what's the, what's the quick skinny on, uh, on create. Well, create, so calling for me, the way I define it is where your talents and your burdens collide. And so mm-hmm. we get these birthright gifts in the womb, Psalm 139, God, God, all our, you know, all our days are written and planned before one of them begins and then he knits us and his works were wonderful. And then he invites us into this destiny that is really informed by burden, I believe. So I think the world understands that the birthright gifts, those natural things that we're gifted at, yeah. but they don't always know why. And the burden is informed by the life you live, the, the journey, you, the family you've been born into. It's actually the places of pain. It's things that have broken your heart. It's the things that make you weep. And so for me, um, I was called Becca Book in fourth grade because I read 62 Nancy Drew books that year. We didn't have a TV <laughs> and I just... I was obsessed with reading. I didn't know then that readers make writers. In fact, I never heard until I was 32, my mom was pushing my son on a swing and she said, I always thought you'd write. And I thought that'd be super helpful when I was picking a major in college because I just <laughs> didn't ever connect the dots that I could write. I, I loved, I was a voracious reader and I loved vocabulary, but I just didn't connect the dots that I would actually publish a work that was like way beyond. I was a musician. I played trumpet and piano and that was kind of the lane I thought I was going to land in. But then I watched my dad have his first mental breakdown when I was a senior in high school and he went into a psychiatric hospital when I was a freshman in college. And I watched him struggle much of his adult life, um, in the area of like just a mild depression. And then I have a firstborn son at 26 whose IQ to this day is in the 40s. And so I'm a daughter and a mother sandwiched between two men in my family line that have struggled with mental illness on some level. And I just felt deeply, um, when I started my struggle in New York, I thought, well, this is genetic and this this seems like that would make sense where I'm walking into that lane too. But that's why I think pain, even in that season, became purpose for me because I was able to start writing about it or talking about it, bringing light to it, feeling passion about it because the root of passion means to suffer. So I think sometimes even the work we're so passionate about it about comes from a root of suffering, of watching someone we love suffer, of us personally suffering in a way 
to where we're actually able to mobilize that into something beautiful that we are able to offer the world. And I do believe that the measure of trial you've endured does directly relate to the measure of hope you can offer the world. Wow. It's it's just watching, letting you be a vessel for that to flow through and being honest about it uh, because you then realize, oh, wow, so many other people are facing this too. I'm just trying to give language to it. And that's been the most rewarding part of my work, quite frankly. I'm, I'm glad you make the connection between sort of the burden you bear and the story you have and the message you have. Because we get, uh, I, I, and I'm sure you get this, but a lot of young leaders who are like, what am I going to write? How am I going to build my platform? And I'm like, well, you kind of need a story first. Like maybe get a couple laps under your belt. And, uh, you know, now we have this influencer thing where you're just an influencer because people follow you. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have sustaining content, you kind of need a message. You need a story that somehow informs what you're sharing. What, any thoughts on that? I agree. I think, you know, you can't write unless you have, unless you've lived. And, mm. <laughs> and if you've lived, that means there's some stuff, there's some stuff you've learned. And, yeah. um, it's important to not get ahead of ourselves uh, because God invites us into so much to share, but part of it, we really can't with authority take something public until we've wrestled it private, you know, until we've walked it out, till we've watched him move, till we've seen a richness come. And then we can offer that um, as something redemptive. I think that's important because we can put a lot of stuff out online today that we're feeling today. But is it someone, is it something that's going to actually offer someone hope, encouragement, strength? And it's hard to offer what you haven't received. So part of it is we have to walk that on our own with our community and our people. And then let that, let it kind of surface, let it bubble to the surface. And you're right. That's how my first book came. It was a story of rescue. And I was like, all right, here we go. But the other part of create, I think not everyone are writers and it, there's so many people, ways to create. And so I, I do a chapter here called Work With Your Hands. And I mm. think part of it is we've lost the art of just actually just the tactile things. And so so I challenge people, you know, like just figure out like what you can create with your hands. It's you mean not like just, build a birdhouse, right? Yeah, or something or, like that. Or make, make a new recipe, right? You know, you know, paint with your color with your kids. I don't care. Just something that just works a different muscle that you don't always professionally do. Go back to your eight-year-old self. What did you love when you were a kid that before you learned how to be afraid and drove your parents, you drove, you loved it so much, you drove your parents crazy. Like recover those things, those hobbies, those, those places of enjoyment, because that's this holistic picture of health, this comprehensive mm. picture of who you, you said you love biking. Yeah. You probably loved that as a kid, right? I did. I always, I was always on my bike and I love barbecue. That's another thing after I burned out, I'm like, okay, I need some hobbies and like yeah. to be able to make a brisket that smoked yeah. for 23 hours and to see your friends take that first bite. Like that's fun. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that to me is the comprehensive picture of health. It's not like, Hey, we're killing it in our, you know, vocational work from nine to five where we're actually relationally strong. We're inviting people in, we're sharing our hearts, and then we're making food for nourishment for them. And, you know, that's what God sees when he creates us. He's like, I want this holistic picture of health. Mm. You're going to have a dominant rhythm that maybe is more effortless and more prone to, but don't neglect the other three because a holistic healing is going to include all four areas. You can't, 
You can't have the fullness, I don't believe, with if you avoid one of those things because God's not casual about any of them. He says, I made you to rest because I rested. I want your, your, you to steward your body. I want you to, um, to be one. <laughs> mm. I want you to be one and I want you to be in, walk in unity. And then I want you to, um, to take the birthright gifts I've given you in the womb and use them for my good and my glory. Wow. Well, the book is called Rhythms of Renewal and you can get it anywhere books are sold, but where can people connect with you online? I know you're on Instagram. Is it just Rebecca at Rebecca Lyons? Yes. And my name is spelled a little different. It's Hebrew. The Hebrew spelling is R-E-B-E-K-A-H-L-Y-O-N-S. And um, do you have a website people can find? Yes. It's just RebeccaLyons.com. It's so basic. Just my name on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then my website's RebeccaLyons.com. And the book is Rhythms of Renewal. And it is on, you know, everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. Well, I got to tell you, this has been a joy. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate um, what you're doing and the message you're getting out there and the practicality of what you shared today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. Man, that was a great conversation with Rebecca. She has so much wisdom on this. And if you want a little bit more you can head on over to the show notes. We will link to everything we talked about. There's also transcripts if you want to go a little bit deeper. All of that is free. You can find it at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 303. We have some exciting episodes coming up on the show. We've got, who have we got? Well, we've had some exciting episodes too. I mean, Pat Lencioni, have you heard that? N.T. Wright, Gordon McDonald. But coming up, we've got Carlos Whitaker, I got a couple of my staff. They're coming on in December and we are going to talk about what it's like to work together. John Ortberg is back, Larry Osborne, uh, Instagram sensation, Jasmine Starr. And uh, well, you want a sneak peek at 2020? Uh, How about uh, Francis Chan, Louis Giglio, Liz Forkin Bohannon did an unbelievable interview with her. John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke, Jenny Allen, Craig Grishel, Lisa Turkhurst. Crazy. We got a great couple of months coming up and you get that all for free when you subscribe. Also in 2020, we've got Mark Driscoll on the podcast. So I I think, hey, if that isn't reason to subscribe, I don't know what is. And I only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. So thank you so much. You guys are making every month better. And thank you too for standing with our partners. We vet these fairly carefully, actually very carefully. And if you haven't checked out two brand new partners that we've got for you this episode, Right Now Media, go to rightnowmedia.org forward slash carry. They've got some great leadership training videos and personal resource, personal care, Bible studies, so on and so forth. And really build into the families in your church, build into marriage ministry by heading over to marriedpeople.org forward slash carry, where you can get some significant savings before the new year starts. And uh, what I want to do right now, um, two things before we wind down, I want to give you a sneak peek of next week when we are here with my friend, Chris Lemma. Chris and I met in San Diego. Uh, We taught together at the Sticky Teams conference in San Diego. And then we sat down and did this conversation on how to gain traction online, what really matters and what really doesn't in your online platform. Plus some really interesting conversation from the early days of the internet in the 90s in Silicon Valley. It's also incredible for 48 to 65-year-old men. Uh, right? We're looking for that who, final who, job. It's amazing. Well, some or or they're looking. They're the they're the owner of a company. Oh yeah, okay. And they're looking for a vendor. Mm. And it, because they, they they look at Facebook and they go, "That's for kids." 
right? They look at Instagram, they, they're not on it, right? They look at Twitter and they go, I don't get it. It's just a bunch of yelling, right? You're it talking is. to a 60-year-old executive who the only network he's ever been on is LinkedIn. And, and you say to him, hey, we need to hire uh, a guy who does our Facebook ads. He doesn't go to Google. He doesn't go to ya uh, YouTube. He doesn't go to Facebook or Instagram. He mm. goes to LinkedIn and he searches for this. And then here comes my buddy's article and he goes, oh yeah, contact this guy, right? Wow. It's a completely different ballgame. So that's next time on the podcast, guys. And then, uh, well, time for Ask Carrie. So the question, and I want to thank you for your questions on this. On any social platform, just use hashtag Ask Carrie. And very apropos, given what we talked about with Rebecca Lyons, Chris wants to know, what are some effective ways to help your team not experience burnout? How do you put systems or processes in place that encourage staff to protect their personal time? Well, a couple of things, plus I'm going to give you a free resource. Okay, so this is fun. I would encourage you to help them see the entire picture. Um, often what happens is it's very popular in culture to throw work under the bus. Uh, if you're starting to feel any stress or anxiety in your life, you can just say, oh, you know what? It's work, man. My workplace is toxic, blah, blah, blah. Very, very common to do that. Now, what I've done, and uh, by the way, if you want the free resource, just go to thehighimpactworkplace.com and I have got a free PDF. If you sign up for the waiting list for my brand new course that comes out next month, The High Impact Workplace, I give you a resource that I think can go a significant way to helping you reshape your staff culture. It's absolutely free. You'll get it immediately. But I share with you five questions I have asked my staff over and over and over again over the years. And uh, it really does help prevent burnout. And some of these questions, here's what they're going to do. They're going to, in a very appropriate way, help people see that sometimes burnout is not just a work issue, it's a life issue. And if it is a work issue then those questions will also help lead you to some solutions. So, for example, here's what I've done. So the question is, uh, how do you make sure that your team doesn't experience burnout? Well, life is going at a billion miles an hour right now. People are going to get burned out. But here's what I'll often say to the staff. You know, I want to ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing? And then you just listen. And you ask them not just about work, but you ask them about life. How's it going at home? How's it going with the kids? How's it going at school with your kids? How, how's it going with, you know, how are you feeling? You're getting some sleep at night, that kind of thing. And it's amazing what happens because people start to tell you about their lives. And I, you want to do that in a very appropriate way. And I've got some um, coaching and counseling in the High Impact Workplace free resource. So again, just go to thehighimpactworkplace.com. You can get the sheet that tells you far more uh, than I will in this brief segment about how to coach your staff on these things. But people will say, you know what, I'm just not getting enough sleep. Or uh, young singles might say, I've been watching Netflix all night or gaming all night or out with my friends all night. Or man, my kid just isn't sleeping. And again, you're not judging, you're just listening. And then what happens is when you have that conversation with people, they begin to realize, you know what, I, I need to get to bed earlier. Or I need to get some help with my daughter. Or I need, I need this. And then you ask them some work-based questions, but often... It's a moment where they realize, wow, it's life that's stressing me out. Now, I've coached a lot of people through that. You're not a counselor. You're not any of that. But, but it's a light bulb moment for them because here's the reality. Okay, let's say you work 40, 45 hours a week. You know what that means, right? There's 168 hours in a week. So that means about 128 or 123 are beyond your control as an employer. And that's often where people get just jettisoned. It's like, I, I don't know how to manage my time. When I've used these five questions I'm giving you for free, 
it's, it's just changed the dialogue because people, you know, intelligent people go, wow, I really should work on getting to bed earlier. I really should work on eating properly. I really should work on getting some sleep or I really should work on, you know, getting some help for my kids or my sons or daughter. And sometimes just being a, a caring, listening ear, they just feel great about getting it off their chest. And then you ask them some questions about, well, how is, how is work part of the issue here? Like, are there any obstacles you're facing? And then they say, well, actually, I've got a really, you know, problem on this project I'm working on. And then you can kind of come alongside and help them. Uh, the other thing is, if you're making unreasonable demands on your staff, which employers do, that will be unearthed in this conversation that you're having with your team. So uh, as a bonus to you right now, and it's not available forever, but if you go to thehighimpactworkplace.com and you uh, fill in your email, you'll get this sheet. It's five questions every good manager asks for free. I've got some coaching in that. And that's how I've kind of helped my team stay out of burnout and how we've tried to keep our organizations healthy. So I really hope that that helps you. Thanks so much for bringing your questions to Ask Carrie. Just use hashtag Ask Carrie on any social platform. We'll do one of these at the end of the podcast every week. And next time we are back with my friend, Chris Lemma. That's coming up on Thursday, just in a couple of days. Really excited to bring you that. And thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.